Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. All righty. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today, uh, I'm actually very excited about this interview because we're going to be covering the two aspects of the equation here at the same time, the investor side and then also the entrepreneurial side of things. So without a further you know, ado here, uh, Thomas Court, welcome here to the Dealmaker Show. Thank you. I'm excited to be with you on the show. So, I mean, it's, it's really amazing what you have done with, with AngelPad, but I guess before we dive right into it, why don't we do a little bit of a walk through memory lane here and, and let's, let's go back to when you were working at Google, because I believe you started there when there were like around a hundred people compared to the 25,000 plus employees after you left, which it was like around eight years. So what were some of the biggest learnings during these eight years, Thomas? Yeah, so uh, let me go back. So I, I, I joined Google in 2001, um, in very early, about 100 people, as you said, uh, in their product management team. There were about seven people. And my role there was to really figure out everything that went into Europe. So that started with, you know, a lot of the uh, the revenue products. AdWords was just about to launch, AdSense later, Maps and all these things. And, you know, when uh, when you worked for Google that early on, you know, it really wasn't a household name in most places. In the U.S., yes, um, but around the world, it certainly wasn't. And, you know, one of the biggest learnings, I think, through those eight years, um, especially in the early years, was, you know, how quickly technology can disrupt existing industries. It was just flabbergasting when you saw, you know, how quickly, uh, you know, search expanded, you know, really around the world. I'll give you an example. When I when I first went to Germany for Google um, on my first trip, I was about 25% of the market share was Google. By the time I was there, the second uh, the second trip, which was about six months later, it was already half the, the web searches in Germany that were on, on Google. And the same thing was replicated, you know, throughout. It was, you know, when you look at AdWords, it totally disrupted an entire advertising industry just really within a few years. Or look back at, at Gmail, you know, Google... Google Mail, um, you know, completely disrupted the existing players, Hotmail and, and Yahoo Mail, just in a few years. And of course, the same happened with Maps. You know, not, no one's buying, you know, GPS units anymore because everything is on your phone. A few years later, that happened. So, you know, when I look at those those early years at Google, it really helped me understand how quickly technology, if done right, can disrupt existing industries and really almost take down major players that we we never thought we could we could disrupt. That's amazing. And then finally, you get started with the 
entrepreneurial journey. Obviously, it's not like in the in the you know the way that we would see it, like with uh, uh, ramen noodles for a couple of weeks, like more like as uh, running an accelerator. So, so how this you know the the angel pad idea come about? Yes, yeah, so Angel Pad. I launched Angel Pad in 2010. Um, this was a couple of years after I left Google. While I was at Google, still I started to do a lot of angel investments, mostly in founders of companies that left Google as product, mostly product managers that were at Google, and then left to uh, to start their own company. And um, you know, one uh, one really exciting way to to find new companies at the time uh, was obviously your own network, which was inside of Google um, in, in Silicon Valley. But the second one really was emerging as you know with accelerators. At the time, there really was only Y Combinator and TechStars, and um, I would I would join those demo days. And really early on, there were you know maybe 30, 50, 100 people at these demo days. And you would meet founders and, you know, speak to them, you know, figure out if you like them, make, make investment, classic angel investments. And eventually um, I realized that I really enjoy more working with founders than just writing a check, um, figuring out at the earliest stages of a company, um, you know, what is there to be done. And when you're an angel investor back then, but also still today, you know, with all the best intentions of working with a company, the reality is that, you know, once a company raises money um, and if you're not with them next to them every day, you know, they're busy, they're running their company, they're figuring things out. And you as an angel investor, you might meet them every, you know, week, every two weeks, every month. But really, the only thing you do is, is catch up and kind of try to understand the journey they've just gone through. And it really started to uh, um, wear on me. And the idea of working with them side by side really, really emerged. And that that's what became AngelPad is, you know, work with founders at the very earliest stages in their company, usually when it's just the founders and no one else. Um, you know, give them enough money so they, they're okay for, you know, six months, 12 months, and really work with them on a daily basis to figure out what is the big business that we can, that they can build um, behind it. And that's that's what AngelPad is. And so, you know, I, I, I'm a little bit kind of a, a small proxy founder uh, in many of these companies because I'm so early with them. I'm, I'm alongside them and really, you know, help them with the journey and learn from them in the journey. Got it. You know, it's it's remarkable that you got started in, in 2010 because I remember at least when I first started my my previous business in 2010 here in New York City, at least, you know, there was like not that many startups. I mean, now they're like popping everywhere, but uh, it's a, it's just unbelievable how the ecosystem has, you know, shifted a little bit, you know, in the Bay Area, obviously, you know, it was, uh, you know, kicking it in the high gear, but in New York was, was starting. So I guess uh, kind of like talking about the structure of AngelPad and the early days. So who, who are the co-founders and how did you guys meet? So AngelPad really has two co-founders. It's it's Kareen and myself. Uh, you know, we're there full time uh, all the way. Um, you know, the interesting fact, as you know, uh, Kareen and I are married. Uh, so it's a, a, an unusual co-founding team, uh, which I guess now has become more common in Silicon Valley. But certainly at the time, it was it was very unusual um, to have a, you know, husband, wife co-founding team. Got it. Got it. And, and you know what? I, I actually love that, uh, Thomas. I don't think I I mentioned this. My previous business, I, I launched that with my wife. So you know, it's a it's a recipe that I don't recommend doing at home. But when it works, it's actually magical. So it does. Uh, it does. I, I agree with you. You know, I think it's you know when you 
you know, the things that you think about is differently when you're a, when you're a couple and start a business together. Um, you know, and I, I, you know, sometimes people ask me like, what does it take? And we get a lot of applications or not a lot, but some applications from husband and wife, um, um, teams. And they say, look, we're husband, wife, we admire what you do, but I think there's really more to it to make it work. And I'm sure you've experienced the same, same thing where, you know, love is not enough. Um, you know, the reality is we we know our partners well in our personal life, but we don't know them necessarily in our work life. Um, so, you know, what was really, really helpful for Corinne and me, we've actually worked together long before we were a couple um, and really knew each other um, in, a, in, a, in a professional setting way before we knew our, uh, each other in a, in a personal setting. And you know, if you if you work with your significant other, I think it's 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 really important. One that you did you know them or get to know them on a professional level, not just personal level, really well. And then you know that you have just kind of radical honesty. It's it's difficult to be honest with a co-founder. It's even more difficult to be honest with with your spouse or your boyfriend girlfriend uh, co-founder because it's so it you know intertwines so much with your personal life. Um, I think another part that's really important is to figure out how you're complementary and not just, um, you know, that you really want one plus one equals three as much as that sounds a cliche. And I think that's true for, for any co-founder. Um, and it's, it's, it's certainly more important even as a, as a couple co-founder and, you know, if it works, um, it works beautifully because you have complete trust in the other person. Um, you know, you live together, you work together, uh, you figure out how to separate your personal and your business life and not spend every dinner conversation talking about the business. But if it works, it works really well. And I'm, I consider myself very fortunate to spend that much time with Corrine, both in work and, 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 and personal life and make Angel Pat work. That's so fantastic. That's fantastic. You know, it's a, the, the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about, because one of the things that I was just like uh, remembering here was that when I was building the business with Tanya, and we were doing, you know, we were going through the multiple rounds of financing. You know, like I remember the, the investors like being worried, oh, my God, if I invest and this and that. We actually had a memorandum of understanding of what would happen if if we were to split and what would happen with the business. But that kind of like leads me to the to the next question here that I had that I had for you, Thomas, because typically it's like very easy to understand how the financing would work for or, you know, at least it's that's the normal thing that we hear in the entrepreneurial ecosystem on, on how it work, how it would work, how the financing would be structured. But for example, like for, for something like, like AngelPad, how does, you know, the fundraising work and what is the structure like? I will, can I switch back to you for a second, what you just said, Go because Alejandro, it. I think it's super interesting what you just said, you Go know, you know, that you, that your investors asked you about, um, in, you know, having something in writing, basically what happens if you split up. And, and when you think that through, like that's really what any founder should do with their co-founder. And I think it's important, you know, and, 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 and it's great that you did that, but it really is something that every founder should think through not just at the point of fundraising, but all the way, you know, we see a lot of founders or founding teams that come in um, and already have one founder departed, you know, early in the career, uh, oh, sorry, rather early in the in the start of a company, it is so easy to add a co-founder. You know, you need a coder, you need a growth hacker, like you meet somebody, it's like, wow, let's add them to the team. You know, that's exactly what we need right now. And, you know, the, the co-founder title, but also the equity that's involved in co-founders is so significant that unless this person is there for a long time, it becomes really problematic. Um, so, you know, you know, people really should think about vesting schedules, how long you want to vest founders, um, cliffs. Um, so, you know, at what point you actually start earning um, the equity. Um, and I think for, for founders, that is that is double important, not just in the context of um, 
of a couple starting a company together. Um, but but really with any co-founder, I don't think people think enough about this early on. And it really hurts companies in the long run um, when you have a founder that has left after, you know, 18 months and might have five or seven or 10% of the company with them or worse, significantly more than that. Um, but sorry, I just wanted to add that. But uh, let me answer your other questions. So you just no, asked and, me. And I, yeah. and I agree, Thomas. And before we go into answering the other question, you know, something just came to mind that I wanted to ask you. With all these different founders that you see and, and these different companies, is there like an average type of like equity split that you see on these businesses between the co-founders? So we see we see everything. Um, we see uh, you know minority co-founders with a couple of percent. We see uh, we see teams that are three co-founders and have each thirty three percent at the beginning. Um, I think there's there's not really a a one size one one size fits all formula. Um, yeah. I think you have to look at the individual circumstances. Now, from my perspective, if someone is a minority co-founder, someone is a you know five or or seven or ten percent co-founder, um, my next question is why. You know, do you value this person this much less? Um, is this person not as invested? And often you have, you know, these circumstances where, you know, someone might still be at a job. And so there's one founder who's full-time, one founder that's at a job because, you know, for healthcare, for money, whatever it is. And that person has significantly less equity than the other. I'm not sure that's the right way to look at it because you, you're looking at a five, seven, 10-year horizon uh, to build a company. So if someone joins you know, three months after the other person, I'm not sure it, it, it really is a good reason to have these significant equity differences. Um, I think from uh, what we see, you know, it's very standard to have a four-year vesting schedule um, with a one-year cliff. Um, personally, if I would start a company today, um, I would ask my co-founders to have a six-year vesting schedule as founders um, and at least a two-year cliff. Um, so, you know, when you look at the cliff, a cliff is basically the commitment to the company, which says, if I leave before that point, you know, I walk away with nothing or or we have to negotiate what I walk away with, but legally I'm entitled to nothing, which is a, which is a hard concept for founders to say, yeah, you know, what if? But in reality, when you look at the person across from you and you say, well, are you committed for two years? We're going to do this, right? We're going to quit our jobs. We're going to raise money. Maybe we put our own money into this. Uh, we ask our friends and family to put money into this. How committed are you to that? And I think having having a certain commitment goes really a long way, especially the first year, two years go by in a snap. You know, you, you blink twice, um, you don't sleep, and two years are over. Um, so I think as co-founders, the, the concept of longer vesting periods um, espe or, and especially longer cliffs um, is something I would really expect, uh, you know, think about. I, I would do that today. I would I would ask any founders of a company I would start to do at least a two-year cliff uh, and possibly a, a six-year vesting schedule, maybe five years. But I think four years is too start too short when you start when you start out a company on day one. And I love the fact that you say the um, the two year cliff because in many, so many instances, I remember especially when we when we were building up co-founders lab where we matched so so many teams. In many instances, you would see the founder just give away a bunch of equity just just without any type of vesting, and then you know that founder leaves, and then they have like this free rider on the cap table where VCs are completely disappointed and turned off because they're giving you know, investing money to someone that is not sweating or, or, you know, putting the work. 
So absolutely, um, absolutely. And I think you know, with co-founder labs, I'm sure you you saw that all the time, where people come together for a common reason. But then, look, starting a company is hard, building a company, hiring people, fundraising, and especially when the going gets tough. You know, when you when you don't raise the round that you thought you would, and you can't pay yourself as much as you thought you could. Um, you know, people people drop off, and it's not you know they lose interest and they leave, um, you know, it might be personal reasons. It might be that they need a certain amount of money just to live every day. Um, it, it might be that the stress is too much when those things happen, or it might be that someone just doesn't work out as a co-founder for whatever reasons, you know, there's no blame to be assigned. And I think, you know, having, having a vesting schedule in place and, and having discussed that beforehand, um, also the cliff, you know, even if you have a longer cliff and let's say a person has to leave for personal reasons, um, you as a co-founder, you have the flexibility to discuss what that person really should have. Um, so give you an example. If someone has to leave a startup because they need to have really good health insurance, we actually had this happen, uh, needs really good health insurance because there was a medical problem with his wife. And he actually had to go back to the prior job that he had. Um, and the company was very happy to take him back on. You know, th that's a situation that like no one can foresee and is not a, you know, you know, a, a, an ugly breakup as we think of it most times. This is just like, you know, this is life. You know, some people can't do it for whatever reason it is. And those founders agreed to having him you know, a small portion of the company that was more than he, he was entitled to because it was before his vesting, um, sorry, before his cliff. Um, and he still stays engaged to this day with the company as a, as an advisor. And I think the second he can, um, you know, leave or the other company has, has proper health insurance, he's going to be back on as, uh, as, as a key employee. So I think it's something to think through, uh, too few founders think through it at, at day one. Got it. Got it. So I guess for now switching gears a little bit here and, yeah, and sorry. talking about the, <laughs> no, no worries. Say, I think that this is fantastic for the people that are going to be listening. So. I guess switching gears here and talking about the the financing of of AngelPad. How much? And I don't know if this is public, but if it is, how much capital has been raised for AngelPad so far? So we raised uh, since inception probably about seventy, maybe eighty million dollars. I don't know the exact number. And uh, you know what's interesting is the evolution of how this actually was raised. Because when we first started AngelPad in in, in 20, uh, 2010, um, it re was really a vehicle just from Karine and I where where we invested. Um, our own money, and that really went through the first several cohorts. Well, we we you know we were angel investors, and that's how we did it. With the with the difference that we had an office and we had people with us, and we worked with them really closely. Um, you know, around 2013, we raised our first fund. Um, that fund was a relatively small fund um, of at the time seven million dollars. Uh, well, today a very small fund. At the time, it was probably an okay size fund. Right. Um, and that one was raised from, uh, you know, from us still, uh, high net worth individuals and um, very small uh, funder funds. And then our last and most most current fund, which we raised um, this year, is a $50 million fund. And that is purely institutional investors. So this is funder funds um, and institutions with, um, you know, the smallest investment to date is about $10 million um, into the fund. Got it. Got it. Okay. Fantastic. And, and so do you also would uh, consider like, family offices and stuff like that would also invest in in something like this or or not yeah absolutely i think you know what's what's important is to understand the asset class of of accelerators which is different from even micro vcs and certainly from venture capital um you know i think accelerators or certainly angel pad can be bucketed into the into the pre-seed 
uh, seed uh, venture capital. And we actually structure it and see ourselves exactly like a venture capital fund. Um, but for any investor that invests in a, a pre-seed fund, there's a couple of things to consider. One, um, you know, the exit horizon is very long. You know, we invest uh, when there's, you know, a founder or a couple of founders um, you know, and a prototype. Uh, so, so for this company to mature, to raise more rounds of funding, um, and eventually to exit, it, it is a long horizon. So, I think that's the most important thing to understand as a as an as an investor in in pre-seed and even seed investments. The second one, I think, is to understand that the failure rate is fairly high, and that is by design. Um, you know, in pre-seed, you want to make a relatively large number of bets um, and then follow on selectively in companies. So, it's really a you know, it's it's a Darwinian process where at that stage it's incredibly hard to see what the future winners are because th- there's nothing to go with. There's no data. Um, there's there, there's really nothing you can make an evaluation on apart from do you think the founders are capable? Is it an indus- interesting industry? And is the t- approach that they're taking somewhat unique? Is the business interesting? Um, so so the failure rate is higher early on. Um, but then the multiples get get you know are very interesting as soon as you hit the B round of funding, um, and I think for for family offices for you know uh, you know anyone that makes makes these these investments, it's important to understand that dynamic that is specific to pre-seed. Got it. Got it. So, and, and, you know, you were mentioning that, that you guys got started in 2010. And, and since then, it seems like everyone in their mother has been launching a, an accelerator program. Now, the good news, you know, I guess for, for you guys is that you have always been ranked right at the top with other programs like Y Combinator. So what, what makes AngelPad different? That's it. So you're right. Um, you know, I would have, I, you know, I would have never guessed that there's hundreds or even thousands of accelerators when we started. Um, you know, now that's really become a become a thing, and it, it's a, in many ways it's good. Um, accelerators have different reasons to exist. You know, some of them are for regional development. Um, you know, some of them are, are specific to a vertical or or backed by a specific corporation that wants to, you know, you know, induce innovation. Um, you know, Angel has always been a, a very horizontal um, tech accelerator, so very classic. You know, we uh, we're interested in any company that uses technology to solve a problem at mass scale. Um, so it doesn't matter if you are thinking about, uh, you know, technology to make, I don't know, legal practices more efficient or marketplaces to sell cars more efficiently or, you know, API products to, um, you know, build cloud software um, more efficiently. As long as it's technology based and it can scale very, very quickly um, when successful, of course, um, and, and, and become very, very large. And that's kind of like the company we're looking for. You know what? What's always been different about AngelPad uh, from, uh, let's say, you know, the the classic um, early accelerators, Y Combinator, TechStars, 500 startups, is that we've we've always focused on a very small cohort. Um, we've we've interviewed a lot of people. We have a lot of applications, but we always just pick a very small number, usually around 15 companies per cohort. And the reason for that is, you know, going back to the very early, um, you know, at the start of our conversation. We want to work with these companies. We actually want to be with them and and have an impact, Kareen and I working with them. Um, and I think, you know, some of the success have shown that works. You know, we we work with them very closely. Um, we are in the office with them. We, uh, you know, unlike really any accelerator, 
AngelPad doesn't have mentors coming in that speaks to these companies. It's it's really just Corinne and myself and the founders of these companies that are there um, trying to figure everything out. And when I say everything, I mean everything. This is from you know what is the most important what is, what is the most interesting business that they could could build in the context of what they want to do you know what is the revenue model at scale um you know how do they acquire the first customers um how do they you know, anything how do they hire their first engineers really anything that a business needs and because we are so small and so focused on a small set of companies at the time we can really have an impact um working with them and 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 customizing whatever this one company needs um you know what you won't see at angelpad um one you won't see mentors coming in and out giving giving kind of canned uh, advice um or conflicting advice um at worst um, you won't see, uh, um, you know, you won't see as in a classroom setting where people take notes and 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 learn something. Um, that's not the place for AngelPad. We work on the specific company, um, and oftentimes the companies are at a stage uh, where there are specific things to be figured out. It's not just it's not just oh I have an idea now let's start. Um, they're slightly more 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 um, into into the company building, and we have specific things we need to focus on or can focus on. Got it. I mean, I, I was uh, very impressed because I saw that, for example, Harvard Business School, I think that the acceptance rate is like 12%. And that compared to the acceptance rate of AngelPad being 1%, I was like uh, very impressed. Is that is that right? Um, yes. Yeah, so we have, you know, we, we get a lot of applications, um, about 4,000 applications per cohort plus minus. Um, we end up interviewing probably around 200. We interview everybody that 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 we think is interesting and that fits fits kind of into what we like what we like doing. Um, you know, we end up it's usually around 200, 250, 300 um, interviews that we do, and we accept somewhere you know around 15, um, sometimes 12, sometimes 18 companies in every cohort. So yes, yeah, so the, the acceptance rate is well below one percent um, at AngelPad. And and you have you have the um, the program in the Bay Area, and then you have it in New York City. So what what is the difference that you see on the companies that join one or or the other location? So there's really no difference um, at all. Actually, it's it's you know we have where we are, people come to uh, to that location for AngelPad. Um, so we end up having probably about you know 30 to 40 percent uh, founder international founders coming to AngelPad. Um, if, if we're in New York, there's people from the Bay Area that come out. You know, it's a very focused, uh, you know, two and a half, three months program. People fly back and forth. Actually, in you know, if, if you'd ask me where's the best place to have an accelerator the way AngelPad runs, I almost, I almost would say, look, the best place would be like on a remote island with a really high speed internet connection. Um, because what we do is is so unique. You know, we are we're there with the founders. We don't rely on other people coming in. And for the most part, we have a closed door policy. Like there's, you know, no one comes into our office. Um, you know, there's, it, there's, there's, well, certainly no employees um, from the company if they have any already, no mentors, no meetings, uh, no advisors. And so we really could be anywhere. And I think that's reflected in, in the companies when they come to us. Um, they can, they are from anywhere, and they can be anywhere for that short period. Uh, this very intense short period, almost boot camp-like experience, where all that matters is your company, the relationship you're building with Karina and myself, and the relationship you're building with the other founders in the cohort. Which over time is probably, you know, disproportionately affecting your company. You know, I, I always say, 
um, being a founder is, is really lonely. Um, you know, you, uh, you're at a certain stage and I mean, just because someone has started a company two years ago, doesn't mean you have the same problems, the same, you know, sorrows going through, you know, if you're a founder and you have people that are exactly at the same stage that you're at, um, you know, just about to fundraise, um, you know, after that, just about to, uh, to hire your first set of, um, employees, you know, a few years after that, the struggles of hiring your first VPs, um, figuring out revenue and the people that you know so intimately um, that you spend three months with, um, you know, in the same place become a really, really important support system. Most of the founders tell us, you know, years later that some of their, their closest friends are the people that they went through AngelPad with. And that's, you know, that's fantastic for the network because whatever we do, <clears throat> to foster the network at the end it's the relationship between people that make a network work and the value um, that they create between themselves without us sending emails without us setting up events and all of that and those relationships are just really really strong and that's you know that's probably one of the hidden benefits of of angelpad that i didn't foresee happening when we first launched it just the strength of the network between the founders without us even in, being involved and is there like anything that you do there to um, like, do you have like a platform or, or how do you make that that network be a little bit tighter? Well, so we do. We have, you know, mailing lists and things like that. Uh, we have uh, we have happy hours where people get to know each other. Um, but I think the, the most efficient way to do that is is really for uh, for me to be switchboard a little bit. You know, if um, you know, through the fundraising process, it's really important. Um, as as uh, current AngelPad founders, so the current cohorts are fundraising. You know they are reaching out to the to the founders that have fundraised. You know one cycle before that or two cycles before that. You know they they have a database and see who's raised money from whom, uh, who's spoken to whom, and the founders. Um, you know from previous cohorts are really active in making introductions to investors. Now one one I think that's. One thing that's counterintuitive of that process is that it would be very easy for us to make introductions, right? We know all these investors extremely well. We know what they're doing and what they like. Um, and we do make a good number of introductions. But, you know, in a way, as as AngelPad, you know, we, we love our companies equally. And I think the smart investors know that. The investors know that, you know, I, I will... I will introduce a company and I will find the most the best things um, about this company for each investor. I think what's different if introductions come from previous AngelPad founders, so people that have gone through a cohort before uh, before the current cohort, is that the founders really ha they have to meet those founders. So the current founders have to meet the uh, the former founders. They have to convince them that this is a cool you know, business that they're building, um, they have to give them the pitch because that's the way to do it. So it's both practice, but also kind of, you know, getting buy-in from other founders. Um, and then if those founders are comfortable, they're like, hey, there's these two or three or five investors I think you should talk to and I can make introductions to, or they're honest and say, I think those are great investors for you, but I can't make the introduction because I don't have a super strong relationship with them. And so this process of learning how to fundraise, even with existing, uh, uh, sorry, with, with founders, of previous cohorts is super, a super valuable ex uh, exercise um, that is much, much, much more beneficial to the companies than us, us just making introductions to every investor um, on the planet, which we probably can, not on the planet, but in Silicon Valley. Absolutely. I mean, I think that the, the social proof when we're talking about early stage investing is critical because trust is everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's well said. Um, you know, you as a founder and, and, you know, when you, 
when you look at what we do at Angel Pad, a very, very important part is the fundraising and the fundraising process. Um, you know, our companies, you know, we, we get them to a point where what they have is so when they apply, you know, we, you know, we, we've tried to find the best founders, best founding teams with the most interesting businesses in, in really large industries. And then we have the luxury of three months with them to actually hone in on all of that. Right. Is it, you know, is, is there a better way to do this? Is there a slightly more narrow vertical that might be more interesting to start with? You know, all these, all these things that are specific to a company, but then the second part, you know, once they're ready to fundraise, which usually happens, you know, within six, uh, six, eight weeks, you know, understanding the fundraising process and, um, really going through a fairly, um, methodical approach of how to fundraise and preparing them for this fundraise, you know, the, the fundraising starts, many, many weeks before you have your first meeting. Um, and as a, as a founder, you know, you don't fundraise every day. Most likely this is the first time you do it. And even if it's the fifth time you do it, you're not a super pro at it because that's only, only five times you do it. Um, you become really good at hiring, you become really good at code review, whatever it is, but fundraising is always something hard for almost any founder. Um, and so, you know, having us by their side, helping them go through what this process is, you know, makes them, I think, disproportionately more likely to actually raise, raise rounds. You know, many founders, um, you know, I see this a lot from founders that come, um, you know, from all over the world to Silicon Valley for two weeks trying to fundraise and many of them don't succeed. And it's not because they're not good founders. It's not because they have not good, good businesses. Uh, for the most part, they have more revenue than their, than their Silicon Valley counterparts, um, for sure, because, because that's, you know, what most parts of the world value most. What they're failing at is understanding the fundraising process and the social proof and this trust building that you just alluded to. Um, you know, who are the people that can introduce me? Why can they introduce me to? Uh, when you talk about networking, you know, you can't land in Silicon Valley for two weeks, hope to network, you know, get around together, get back out and build your business somewhere um, or, or even relocate your business to Silicon Valley. It's really a process that takes much, much longer than that. And networking uh, as in... Uh, you know, I give and hopefully I get not just I ask for stuff, which is not fundraising, which is not networking, um, is is really really important and that it takes time. Of course. And how much how much capital have the the companies in your ecosystem of uh, AngelPad have raised so far? Uh, so it's a bit of an arbitrary number. Um, so um, hold on to your seats. Uh, it's one point four billion dollars. Uh, wow. Which, which of course you know. Um, is, you know, there's a small number of companies that have raised, you know, a lot of money. And then there's a good number of companies who have raised a significant rounds. And of course, there's a, there's a fair, fair amount of failure in there. You know, what's interesting about the portfolio of AngelPad company, which is about 140 companies by now um, through, uh, through 12 cohorts, um, is that, you know, in every cohort, there is, you know, one or two companies that now have raised very significant funding um, and and are worth, you know, well over $100 million, some over 500 and, and, and you know, even, even, even some unicorns, so valued over uh, $1 billion are in there. But what's interesting is that there's not one outlier out of the whole portfolio. It's, you know, 10% of our portfolio, almost 10%, 9.4% or so, is valued over $100 million today. Got it. So, so I guess from from these companies that you know have raised this money, and perhaps some of them have done the the full cycle, no, of getting it all the way to the um to the I would say to third base or to to home. What what is the um so far the 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 amount of exits that you guys have seen already? 
So we've had, um, I don't know the exact number, but I think it's probably around 15 exits or so. Um, you know, several of them are kind of, uh, you know, accu hires, meaning the team was acquired for, uh, you know, a significant amount of money for most people, but in Silicon Valley terms, not that much money. Um, so sub sub $10 million. Um, and then we had some, some really interesting exits um, that are significantly above that. Actually, two of them, um, we can't say how much they were, but they were significantly above that for all trails and paints in. Um, and then our largest exit today, which came really early in AngelPad in 2013, was Mopub, uh, which was sold to Twitter um, just days before the IPO. And that ended up being an, an exit uh, that was valued roughly at $750 million um, by the time uh, um, uh, Twitter went public and the lockup period had expired. Wow, wow. Because Because when you guys get involved, like, What's typically like, for example, like what ticket sizes do you guys put in and how, how does that structure work? Yeah, so we uh, we invest um, on day one, um, you know, as, as companies are accepted into AngelPad, um, about $120,000. Um, we get about 7% in common shares uh, for that for that investment. And um, then we make follow-on investments as the companies mature. Um, so if if companies out of AngelPad do well, we programmatically invest in them. Um, we now invest up to about two million dollars per company. Got it. And I, I, I'm I must be like unbelievable the the data that you guys now have, and you know some of the patterns that you've seen from all these different founders that that you have worked with. So I guess. You know, like to dive a little bit deeper into that, what 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 are those patterns that you have been able to recognize on founders that go out and 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 end up being widely successful? It's uh, you know, I, I I wish I would have a golden formula. It's it's um, I think it's humbling every time as an investor um, to see uh, you know when you were wrong. Um, both both when you decline companies and they end up being successful companies, um, or when you when you see companies that you think are super successful and you love the founders and you love the businesses and for some reason they don't work out. Um, and of course, then when, when uh, you know, companies that you have questions about and, and worry for a long time all of a sudden become these big successes. Um, you know, I, I think holistically there's a couple of things I think that matter. Um, and I've spoken about that sometimes um, in the context of international founders. So we have a disproportional success with international founders, people that come to the U.S. to start their company or have recently come to the U.S. Um, certainly, not even first, not even uh, you know, first generation. They actually are the immigrants, the people that were educated somewhere else and come come to the U.S. Um, to to start their company. Um, and I think, you know, they have some traits which are pretty applicable to anyone. Uh, it doesn't have to be an an immigrant, a recent immigrant at all. And I think that's kind of the grit, like the, uh, the uh, you know, willingness to succeed, the willingness to pack your bags and go somewhere, either physically or, or just saying, yes, I'm going to do this. Um, you know, this is, this is an unlikely journey. Um, this is not a pre-made path that many have walked. The chance of failure is high, but I'm going to learn something from it. So it's kind of like this, this, this immigrant spirit, I want to say, um, is something that that we really see standing out, even for the founders that are not immigrants and that end up being successful. They they have that spirit of of, of immigrants. Got I think it. the other the other thing that that we really see is um, people that are that are adaptable, um, people that see what's working, what doesn't work. Um, they're opinionated, but uh, but they use data and 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 smarts uh, to make decisions and are willing to deviate from what they thought was right um, and and kind of find that path. You know, if as a startup founder, 
you know, you make, you make 20, 50, hundred decisions every day or week. Um, and it's not about making the right decision at every turn. It is making more right decisions than wrong decisions and keep honing into the direction there is, you know, there's a million ways to build a billion dollar company. Um, as long as you keep moving forward on the right path and you find like the best way to move forward, you're likely, you're more likely to succeed. And the last thing I want to say is, you know, many of them just want to be successful. Um, you know, they have to prove something to themselves. Uh, they have to prove something to the people around them. Uh, they've gone through hardship and they want to prove people wrong. Um, and I think that goes the same way in the grit and kind of like making it happen. Entrepreneurship is uncomfortable. Entrepreneurship is hard. It's it's it, the chance of failure are very high. Um, and, and the people that just stick with it and, and have the grit, we tend to see being more successful. Got it. And I, you know, I think that you're in a, in a very privileged position because you get to see now all these different founders, all these different sectors, all these, you know, connections that you have to, to the, some of the world's, you know, top investors. So I guess like after like, you know, being like so in the ecosystem as you are, Thomas, what are the sectors that you think have the most amount of potential growth for the next couple of years? Look, I think anything. Um, it would be too easy to say AI or this or that specific thing that's that's en vogue right now. Um, but you know, we are in such a transformational period right now that, unlike we've ever seen, I think, in the history of mankind. And as as much as it sounds like a cliche, you know, everything is going to be disrupted. It doesn't matter which industry, which company. Um, someone is going to do it differently, and it's going to make it more efficient, and 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 will build a multi-billion-dollar company behind it. So, you know, when you ask me what's what am I most excited about? You know, when we get applications of an industry or of a product that I've never thought about, I'm like, oh wow, I didn't think of that as a multi-billion-dollar company. Uh, sorry, multi-multi-million-dollar industry or multi-billion-dollar industry rather, um, and and see something unique where like a team has like a smart approach to doing that. Um, and, and disrupting that industry. And it it literally can be anything from, uh, you know, you know, transportation, which we've seen a tremendous amount of disruption just in the past few years from Uber to Hyperloop to, uh, you know, now the scooters, um, you know, mass transportation, um, all of those things, um, all the way to, um, you know, any service business there is. It doesn't matter if you're a plumber, if you're a lawyer, um, or if you're an accountant, um, there's going to be massive disruption. So, you know, we see, you know, the, the most fun part about um, AngelPad is kind of seeing all the applications coming in and seeing things that, frankly, you've, you haven't thought about that much. And you're like, wow, this is interesting and kind of getting deeper into it. On the flip side, the worst part about AngelPad is declining so many people, um, you know, it, with with very little information. Um, actually, w what's the hardest part is when people then reach out and say, oh, can you tell me why you declined us? And just the pure volume of, of declines that we have, we unfortunately can't can't answer that. And it's also, it would be very, you know, presumptuous of us to uh, to really make a full judgment on a company or why somebody is. It's just, you know, for the most part, we decline people because they don't fit into what we do um, or 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 what, what we uh, you know think is interesting or 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 somehow you know a gut a gut feeling um, about it. But yeah. sorry, that that's uh, you know just a quick about <laughs> best part. Best part of AngelPad there's you never know what the next big business is when you open your inbox and you you look at applications. Worst part, saying no to so many people, and oftentimes because we are one of the first you know investors that they that they have an interaction with, um, it you know it might hurt disproportionately hard to have a hear a no from us. 
Um, and we hope, you know, in that application letter, we actually tell people like, don't take that as a judgment. You know, we didn't spend that much time on your application or any application. Um, it's just not right for us. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. I mean, out of 4,000 applications that you guys receive, if you had to sit down with everyone, oh my God, that would be um, a little bit tough. But uh, anyhow, I, I completely get it, Thomas. So for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Oh, okay. So there's a couple of ways. Uh, one, as you just said, it's hard for us to do one-on-ones uh, because we have we have such enormous you know amount of inbound. What I what I do is like I I go to conferences all the time. I speak. I'm at TechCrunch Disrupt. I'm at I was I just came back from Web Summit in Lisbon um, earlier this week. Um, when I'm there, approach me, say hello. You know, find me. I love to speak to people. That's why I'm there to spend time with people um, that I would otherwise not meet. I think when you if you're a founder and you uh, you're thinking about a company, if you have a prototype. Um, if you have something you committed to your company, certainly way to engage with us is through up applying uh, at AngelPad, which is angelpad.org. Um, if you are an investor, same thing on the website. It's really easy. There's a form for investors. Uh, you know, we try to systematize um, and put everything in systems. Um, uh, also, how we engage with people at scale. So the best way is take a look at the website. It tells you where to uh, where to find everything. And then if you do see me in person, stop me and say hello. Fantastic. Well, Thomas, thank you so, so much for being part of the show today. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.